Good afternoon. You're tuned in to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name is Greg Nicholson. Unfortunately, your regular host Kingsley Kapuri is away this week, um, busy doing what he says are more important things. But we'll find <laughs> out when he returns next week. But I am joined today by my colleague um, Simon Allison, Daily Maverick's Africa correspondent. Simon, how are you doing? Well, um, I'm, I'm usually Kingsley, you know, comes in with a really strong build-up and, and flatters me with compliments. So I'm, I'm missing that today. Your, your beard is looking great. For anyone who hasn't met Simon out there, like, what sort of beard oil are you using? Do you want to just? <laughs> Should I go? I don't, on? I don't reveal my secrets. It's, uh, you know, it's, well, it's trademarked. We're actually lucky to have you here today because you're actually rarely in the country. You've been traveling so much; it's hard to meet up for coffees. It's hard to actually talk about work. That you're always around. This month, what you've been to Kazakhstan? Were you also in Zambia? It's been it's been a good good couple of months. Um, I was in. What? Uh, Zimbabwe, then Zambia, Malawi, Kenya, and I've just come back from Kazakhstan. Um, this isn't that usual. This is pretty <laughs> exceptional. Um, I wouldn't but, say my life is as exciting as it sounds, but um, it's, it's been a good couple of months. But you do travel a lot. And what do you think, what is it like, this sort of life of yours? Is this the dream job, you know, the foreign correspondent type lifestyle that people sort of envisage it as? And always on the road, seeing beautiful sights and meeting different people. Well, I think the dream was, the dream really ended in, I think, the 1920s. Um, <laughs> okay, that's that was, depressing. That was, that was, that was the, the, the golden era, you know, Graham Greene, um, the, the novelist, he was also a journalist, um, or was he going there? I don't know. He went to Liberia and Sierra Leone to, to do some writing and he traveled around the country and he went with a team of porters, um, and one of the porters, um, who followed him around everywhere. His, 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 his only baggage was the case of whiskey, um, which was clearly an essential requirement for, for any researcher or journalist in the day. Um, unfortunately, I have submitted multiple re- requests to our editors for a, a, a whiskey carrying porter. And here you are carrying your own whiskey. <laughs> exactly, you know. It's just ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. The, the privations which we have to put up with today. <laughs> Um, no, but I, I guess foreign correspondence really has changed in the last 10 or 20 years. You know, gone are the days where something would happen and your publication would just send you, um, you know, get on the first plane and they'd cover flights and accommodation and uh, translators and fixes, all those basic costs. That doesn't really happen anymore unless you work for one of the, you know, few remaining flagship mm. publications that still do that. The New York Times. Occasionally the Guardian, but increasingly less and less for them as well. Um, maybe the Wall Street Journal. Um, for Even most the BBC of us, or Al Jazeera, you know, or anyone. BBC tends to have um, more locals in place, mm. although they they do have correspondence that they send. Um, Al Jazeera, they still they still do a lot of that. They do a lot of good work on that front. But for the rest of us, we just have to hustle. Um, we have to try and you know create opportunities, um, make contacts. Often, what I will do is is you know I want to cover something for the daily maverick i'll find a a a freelance gig that i can do that Mm -hmm. might be able to cover my travel or will pay me enough for a story that that payment will cover my travel Mm -hmm. um i'll also go cheap you know when i went to zimbabwe i went on the bus which was a fantastic experience actually um it took a little bit longer than the plane did um but I, I learned a lot along the way I, i i also was bombarded with christian propaganda for for about 11 out of the 13 hour journey. Um, and I, this is kind of what you, you have to adjust to working in a, in a different manner. 
I'm glad you brought it back to to modern day journalism. I was a bit worried about your nostalgia for <laughs> colonial reporting, <laughs> but. Tell me, what does you? You've also probably not all that many readers of your stuff, or they might not know that you've actually lived in many parts of the world and grew up in in a number of different cities around the world. And so, you've had a very international both upbringing and also experiences. Now, I was wondering, what does it do to your identity? Does it help you find out more about who you are and learn about more about your values and how you see yourself? Or does it get to that point where it's sort of like you're in so many different spaces and you don't really belong properly to any of them? I think it's um, probably quite confusing most of the time. You know, you exactly as you said, you don't really belong 100% anywhere. Um, I think it's one of the reasons that my wife and I get along so well is because we both had a very international upbringing. Um, we're both sort of global citizens who don't really fit in, um, but we do fit in with each other. But I think that from a sort of professional perspective, what it brings is is that it's perspective. Um, mm. You know, the problems we have in South Africa, I think I'm better positioned to relate them to problems elsewhere in the world um, than someone who's just lived in South Africa all their lives. Um, and actually, from in that context, you know, I'm, I'm pretty upbeat about South Africa. I think we're doing quite well despite... Um, all our difficulties at the moment. I think that is a fascinating perspective because you you can compare so that you have a lot of experience in these different other places. It's so interesting that you're more upbeat than in a lot of other South Africans in perhaps even even the ones who are in very good situations who often seem to fall into despair uh, rather than look at sort of the rays of hope. Absolutely. You know, you, you, you look at this country, and Kandla is a great example, and it's very newsworthy given that the money has now been paid back. But the, the, the whole sort of Nkandla cost, what did it come to? 250 something About million, million rand. You know? million so we're talking $20 million plus minus. Now, when Zuma goes. This is post Nene Gates or pre, but. <laughs> when Zuma goes to the African Union, um, and he sits with some of the presidents there and he says, oh, well, you know, I stole $20 million. Guys like the Bongos, the Obiangs are sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, in their ill-gotten gains. You know, $20 million is, is actually peanuts. But yet, in South Africa, we as a society have chosen to, to draw a red line under that, to mm -hmm. say actually $20, $20 million is too much. We're going to cause a huge fuss. We're going to do whatever we can. We're going to shout. We're going to scream. We're going to demand that the money gets paid back. And that is setting a precedent that is incredibly encouraging for our future. You know, if all, if every South African president for the foreseeable future only steals $20 million, we're in a really, really good place. Okay. <laughs> so we actually have a tweet here from our former colleague, actually, a colleague of ours, uh, Teresa Mellison. She asked Simon, um, about some of the challenges and pros and cons of reporting abroad. And I think one question I might take from her tweets is, how do you make contacts and get access to certain spaces when, when, when you travel and go do a story, let's say when you're in Harare recently? How do you actually build those contacts when you move, move in, uh, build those contacts when you move into these new spaces? You know, it's, it's really tough. Um, when I first started out as a journalist, another former colleague of ours, Karine Duplessis, was working in the same office as, uh, as we were. And, 
anytime there was a story, she'd just like go through her phone mm. and she'd phone somebody. And that somebody would know what was going on. And, you know, so I, I sort of asked her as the sort of starry-eyed young journalist, I said, Corinne, how do you get your sources? How do you find sources? How do you make these contacts? And she just said to me, it's time. And I think the same applies whether it's local or foreign. Of course, it, when you're dealing with, with, with contacts that are not in the country, it is more difficult. But I find often that social media is, is a huge help in that because you can access people more directly through mm. Twitter mm. than you can through, you know, um, more official channels. And I think that people are often, you know, when I have done some local reporting, I find that people are almost more weary about speaking to local reporters than they are about speaking to foreign reporters. Um, or, or for me, mm-hmm. when, when I go into Zimbabwe, I, I find it much easier to, to make contacts and meet people than, than I do when I work here. And I'm not too sure why that is. Maybe it's because I'm more interested in those issues. So, you know, I know the people better. I know who to mm-hmm. contact. But I also think people like telling stories on an international stage. It, it sort of makes their own story slightly grander and more important. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it, it's tough, but it's, it, it keeps me occupied. Okay, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. I'm joined by my colleague, um, Simon Allison, and as you know, my name is Greg Nicholson. Simon, you just mentioned on, on your list of, of grand corruptors, you know, <laughs> one, one President Ali Bongo, who we're talking about Gabon now, and we saw the, they went to elections recently, to a, and it was a very close and tight race. Um, before we get into the disputed results and some of the violence issues that have happened there, can you just sort of set the context of the race between Bongo and, and Jinping, um, who was running in opposition for the presidency, um, and just sort of set the scene for us? Well, Gabon is a sort of de facto dictatorship, you know, one where, a place where there, there are regular elections, somewhere perhaps like Uganda, where, where there are elections, there are votes, but we all know who's going to win. Um, and the same family has been in power for as long as I can remember. Hmm. Um, before Ali Bongo, right? it was Omar Bongo. And now Omar Bongo and Jean-Ping, who of course was the opposition challenger, go back a long way. And also um, some people might know him because he was the former African Union Commission chair. Absolutely. They go back a long way. They were close family friends. Um, that Jean Ping at some point married a daughter of the family. Um, and then something, you know, clearly went wrong at some point along the line. And Jean Ping decided he wanted to take on this establishment that he comes from effectively. Um, and he started up this, uh, this campaign to unseat Ali Bongo in these elections. And it was actually an extraordinarily successful campaign mm. for a challenger to come so close to winning. And in fact, I, I think it's fair to say that, that Jean Pink did win those elections. If you look at the results, um, Ali Bongo won by 6,000 votes. Mm. Now, if you look at the turnout across the country, the average was about 60%, except in the president's home province, where the turnout was something like 99%. And of those 99%, 
I think 98% voted for Ali Bongo. Mm -hmm. So that's where that 6,000 margin came from. It came directly from some incredibly dodgy business happening in the president's home province. So the result was effectively stolen from Jinping. Now you've got Jinping crying foul. And he says these elections cannot stand, that the the vote was stolen from him, that he demands legal recourse, that he demands assistance from the international community. And he's right. He's 100% right. But he's also got himself to blame because he was chairperson of the African Union between mm -hmm. 2008 and 2012. And in that role, he legitimized countless elections on the continent. Exactly the, the similar set of circumstances. He put the African Union's seal of approval on it without raising an objection, without raising any public condemnation of the tactics being used by these presidents for life. A great example is elections in Sudan. Mm -hmm. Now, Omar al-Bashir, as we well know, is a wanted war criminal by the International Criminal Court. And yet... Um, Jean Ping described his election as a big step forward for democracy and freedom in the Sudan. Never mind that that election was boycotted by most opposition parties, mm. characterized by huge intimidation from the government, um, complete censorship of the press, etc. Um, and, and yet those conditions were not sufficient for Jean Ping, as chair of the African Union Commission, to condemn. Now the table has been turned and he is on the receiving end. And so while he, he is right, you know, he's got a case, he won that election. It's kind of hard to now paint him as a, a fighter for democracy, mm. a fighter for, for freedoms. I get the sense that even if he were to take over Gabon, he would just um, implement a very similar regime to, to, to the one that Ali Bongo is running. Mm -hmm. Just, in an article I was reading about the Gabon the elections over there, I found this this uh, little paragraph. I'll read it out for you. Fascinating. Because we're talking about that province, right, where the votes appeared extremely dodgy. So here we go. I think it might have been from The Guardian or something. So it says, The first battle was not fought on uh, Libreville's potholed streets, however, but in an obscure corner of Wikipedia. <laughs> Overnight, there were more than 100 modifications to the online encyclopedia's page on, uh, excuse my pronunciation, uh, Haut uh, Aguay. Uh, Gabonese province. One minute its population was 54,000, the next 250,000. Then it, it was changed back. <laughs> um, and then, so this was the province where the votes were last to be counted and they were the most contested. I love how there were actually people out there trying <laughs> to sort of send that's, either information or misinformation. Incredible. I didn't know that about the, the, the Wikipedia battles. <laughs> that's right. Who knew? That's, <laughs> that's where these battles now start. But I think I find it sort of very interesting what you're saying. It sort of seems, whether whether Gabon is to get a new president, so I know they get, there's been challenges in the constitutional courts. Mm -hmm. Am I right up there? Mm -hmm. And there's, they're calling there is another AU AU sort of team who's going to yes, led by the president of Chad, who's not exactly <laughs> a uh, democratic paragon himself. Is is what happened? What's happening in Gabon? Do they suffer from you know what's often called the sort of resources curse? This oil, this very oil rich nation. Or it's what it seems that we have is an extremely wealthy elite who who don't seem to listen or care that much about your average citizen, and and so and so Absolutely. the cycle seems to roll on. It it is. It's it's about control of the country's natural resource wealth, which is 
relatively huge for its population mm. and completely unevenly spread. The sort of wealth inequalities are e- enormous. And that's what this election is, is actually about. It's about which group of elites gets to control the money. Mm-hmm. It's not about a sort of dictatorship versus democracy or anything like that. Um, and I think we must be careful of framing it that way and be careful of, of painting Jean Ping as some kind of liberator, which I've seen lots of comment um, sort of suggesting that, oh, he's fighting for the, he's fighting the good fight, fighting for the people. No, he's not. He's fighting for Jean Ping as he has um, throughout his career. So it just seems depressing <laughs> going forward. But also, I think one of the interesting cases that it's issues that this, um, the elections in Gabon have brought up are France's roles, the French role in its former colonies. Because it seems they're quite reluctant to get too involved in Gabon, at least. And under continued criticism, obviously, France for, for sort of using a heavy hand, I'd say, or, or, uh, completely interfering and in running some of these countries. What does, so now in terms of we saw that it was the EU observers were some of the guys who actually, you know, called these mm. elections in um, Gabon and Dodgy. But how, what sort of position does it put guys like France in? Are they able to sort of intervene and, you know, sort of like they did in Cote d'Ivoire a few years back? Um, or, or is there now too much scrutiny on neocolonialists? You know, I, I think that France doesn't necessarily have an incentive to act hmm. in Gabon. Unlike in Cote d'Ivoire. So in Cote d'Ivoire, what you had was one candidate who was very anti-France and one candidate who was relatively amenable to the French. Um, and it's no surprise that that candidate, Alassane Ouattara, is currently the president of Cote d'Ivoire. In Gabon, you've got two candidates who are both pretty friendly with the French. Um, you know, Jean Ping goes back a long way, um, in the sort of African francophone diplomatic world, he plays the game. Mm. He's not going to rock the boat. So France is quite content to sit back and let this one play itself out. They don't need to risk any of their political capital. Um, they don't need to risk those accusations of neocolonialism mm-hmm. because whatever happens, it's going to be roughly the same result for them. So let the AU try and do its thing and just exactly. wash their hands of it. Exactly. Okay, turning in to another recently contested election. <laughs> Those, this is, and, and this could be a number of different that's examples. Right. Yeah, and, and that's the scary thing. At the moment, you don't even know which one I'm going to say. <laughs> but you were in Zambia recently, so there we go. And today, actually, President uh, Edgar Lungu is being inaugurated um, for, I guess, to begin his first full term as mm. a president. You were up there recently, and, and I know you follow Zambian issues quite closely. Um and so obviously in that election, what we saw again was a very tight race, um, opposition parties contesting the results, mm. but having no luck with the courts. Um, what I think I'd like to know from you is about Zambia going forward. Mm. You were writing the other day and you're just sort of saying now that President Lungu is, you know, starting his sort of first full term and might have an opportunity to really sort of stamp his authority on the presidency, um, and government. He also faces issues of crisis and crises. There's the drought. There's completely fractured political situations. There's been a crackdown on free speech and, mm. and what seems like sort of increased securitization. They've got slow in ec- economic growth, very high inflation. What does, what does Lungun actually need to do to start turning some of these things around? It's been a strange couple of years in 
Zambia. You know, ever since Michael Sata died, there was a snap election called. Well, first we had the strange period of, of Guy Scott in charge, you of know, course, and, the, and first the, white. the Western press loved that. The, the Telegraph, especially, I think, yep. um, we're all over this, this first white African in charge of an independent African nation. Who then, also hit out at the South African government, if I remember correctly. Yes, yes he did. Um, and very accurately, I thought. Um, he was spot on. Then you had a snap election. Um, for this, like, 18 months or so before the, 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 the sort of um, scheduled election was due to take place. And so what this essentially has been is, is a sort of 18-month to two-year campaign period where everyone's been jostling for position, hmm. trying to get um, – in, in, in the top seats in time for the, for this election that's just come up. And so what's happened is, is no one's really, especially Edgar Lungu, who, who won that snap election under controversial circumstances again. But Lungu hasn't really been doing very much governing. He oh. has been campaigning and pretty much everything he's been doing has been with one eye on the election coming up. So it's been very short term strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, of, of use and misuse of state resources for um, political campaigning, a crackdown on, on free media. It, it's, been, it's been an ugly election season. And now... Which for Zambia is quite uncharacteristic. It's, it's, it's very unusual. You know, this is um, a... Look, everyone is saying that this is unusual for Zambia, and, and it's true that this level of, of sort of... Um, fighting between the political parties and suppression of the media. Having said that, Zambia is still very good. Mm. You know, the, 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 the sort of election, electoral violence did not spiral out of control, mm-hmm. really. You know, it, it, there was a little bit of it, but it was very manageable. I think South Africa mm-hmm. has had more electoral violence in our local government elections. So Guy Scott was um, right. <laughs> Guy, Guy Scott <laughs> was very right. Was, um, but now Lungu, is in State House. I think he's literally being inaugurated as we speak at the moment. Um, as we started the show, I was looking at um, Robert Mugabe's comments because he spoke at the, at the inauguration oh, really? in Lusaka. And he was, um, I think he described Zambia and Zimbabwe as sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, I don't know which side I'd rather be in <laughs> at the moment. But Lungu now, this is his term. This is, he's got five years. He needs to turn things around. And really, the economy is the most pressing concern. In 2015, the, the Kwacha was the worst performing currency in the whole world. It slid 42% against the dollar. It's, it's come back a little bit since then, but not really enough to, to compensate for those losses. The big part of the reason, uh, you know, and, and amazing how these things all interconnect, but this El Nino Southern Africa has been having, this has caused huge droughts. There hasn't been rain. And 95% of Zambia's electricity comes from hydroelectric plants, mm. mostly the Kariba Dam. But the Kariba Dam's pretty much empty at the moment. It's not producing any power. If it can't produce power, then, of course, the copper mines, which are hugely power-intensive, can't produce enough copper. And anyway, the copper prices are very low at the moment, so they've laid off nearly 10,000 workers over the last year. Things are looking pretty ugly, so he has to turn this around. There is a strategy, and the strategy is to approach the International Monetary Fund, cap in hand, and say, can you guys give us some money? Interestingly, Zimbabwe is in the similar phase at the moment, and they're approaching the World Bank for assistance. But, of course, these are very different cases. The International Monetary Fund 
has essentially said to Zambia, okay, we can, we can talk. Um, I think they want $1.2 billion plus minus. We can talk, but you, you are going to have to do some pretty serious reform. Mm. You know, cut out the fat in the civil service, cut out corruption, and most importantly, cut out subsidies. Um, both energy subsidies and agriculture subsidies. And this is going to be very interesting to see how Lungu can sell this deal to his, to the people who voted mm-hmm. for him. Because yes, Zambia needs the money. They really need a cash injection to help them out of this hole. But can Lungu then turn around and scrap? So this is, this is subsidies for agriculture inputs. So things like seeds mm-hmm. to make seeds cheap and affordable for everyone. And bear in mind, subsistence farming in Zambia is, 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 is is the main form of farming. So if you suddenly increase the price of seeds, well, the poorest people who are doing subsistence farming now can't afford to buy seeds for their crops. How are they going to take this? How are they going to respond? So I'm a little bit concerned that we're approaching a period of social instability in Zambia. Um, this reminds me of, of Nigeria a couple of years ago when Goodluck Jonathan tried to scrap the, the, the petrol price, uh, the, the petrol subsidy. And suddenly the price of petrol went up and there were huge riots in the streets and he was forced to eventually um, uh, reverse his decision. So I, I do wonder how long Lungu is going to be able mm. to keep the ship sailing steadily in the right direction. It's so interesting. I think the talk of you know the IMF coming in with loans and conditions attached mm. just reminds me of all of the structural adjustment programs um, world institutions imposed on developing countries years ago, which had, you know, what I think many people now say were often disastrous consequences. Um, they, they still have their supporters, of course. Mm. But do you think these world institutions have learned anything? Have they changed some of these ideas or, or are they just coming in with their ideas and say, stick to them or forget about your money? Well, I think this is a great opportunity to segue to Zimbabwe. We'll actually do that right after we go to a song and a quick break. How to start your great with Kellogg's and the Kelman 20. Don't procrastinate. Do what you want to do and do it now. Be as good as you can, but they can't actually ignore you. Run your own race and stop comparing yourself to other people. On your own pace, your own race, your own lane. Love yourself enough to work on yourself and be honest with yourself. The main thing is action every single day. Small attainable goals that will get you in the right direction. Hashtag start your great. I am a South African. I carry the hopes and dreams of my country and the generations to come. I know that it's not where I come from, but where I'm going to, that really matters. At Sibanye, we believe the future of our country will be defined by our actions today, which is why we are committed to the development of our leaders. Sibanye, we are one. Visit us on sibanyegold.co.za. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. You're back with us on the Daily Maverick Show. My name's Greg Nicholson, and I'm here with my colleague, Simon Allison. So, just before the break, Simon, we're talking about 
the follies of the West and their and their Bretton Woods institutions and their, their evil structural adjustment I feel like programs. We need, we need to come up with better teasers before ads to make sure people come back. Then, <laughs> then hang on, so we can talk to you more about the Bretton Woods institutions. Um, we'll, we'll work on it for next week. I think you're right, <laughs> but but it's interesting nonetheless. Well, we hope so. You can tweet us at DM Show ZA or at Daily Maverick if you want to tell us whether it is or perhaps is not. But so we're talking about um, Zambia, looking for looking for a loan from the IMF. From um, am I right? Uh, uh, yes, looking for one from the IMF and hoping to solve their economic problems. Um, you know, huge unemployment problems with. Um, Drought and obviously inflation. Now, you wrote another great story this week, which, or maybe it was last week, and I actually found it fascinating that Zimbabwe, President Robert Mugabe, are hoping for a bailout, I think you said for a $400 million loan from the World Bank. You know, this story is just crazy on several different levels. Mm. So first of all, you've got Robert Mugabe, this sort of anti-colonialist, anti-West anti-imperialist, you know, that, that is a sort of bread and butter of any speech that he delivers. You've got his government going cap in hand to these international institutions. This time it is the World Bank. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, please, sir, can I have some more? Um, the, the very, you know, the very establishment that, that Mugabe is railing against, he's also relying on to bail him out of the economic hole that he has dug himself. And it's a really, really serious hole. You know, Zimbabwe has been in trouble before. We're never going to forget the, 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 the trillion dollar Zimbabwean, the trillion Zimbabwean dollar notes mm-hmm. um, during the hyperinflation. But, you know, that whole economic breakdown actually worked in Mugabe's favor. Because as soon as you scrapped the local currency... Um, and moved over to the U.S. dollar, which is what Zimbabwe did. Now, who has the biggest amounts of U.S. dollars in the country? Well, it's the government, of course. They've they've got the foreign reserves, so they suddenly had access. That they had full control over all the cash and how to um, disperse it. So that 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 last economic collapse actually strengthened. Zanu PF's hand. Mm-hmm. This current economic collapse is very different because what's happening now is those far, foreign reserves that have been sustaining their the regime are now running low, and there's no more in the tank. They're having to resort to like what the government's doing now is is if you want to pay for for an international transfer in Zimbabwe, you have to you know you go to the bank and you you pay your hundred dollars and you say you want to send it to South Africa. Normally that transaction takes a day or two. And it goes from the bank, from the Zimbabwean bank, it goes to the sort of Zimbabwean central bank, then it goes to the South African banking system. A day or two. What Zimbabwe is doing now is they're holding that money. So it gets, it gets, goes from the bank, goes to the Zimbabwean central bank, and then the government sits on it for like 30 days. Is that to, to prop up their cash flow? That's to prop up their own cash flow. So while they're sitting on it, they're using it. They're paying salaries, they're paying salaries, and then they're waiting for someone else to pay so that they can then pay for the original transaction that was 30 days ago. And they've slowly, you know, first they increased the time by three days, five days, seven days. Now it's up to, I think it might even be up to 60 days now. It's something crazy like that. Um, so they really have completely run out of cash. And so on this issue, I'd imagine... That taps into the huge amount of remittances sent back from Zimbabweans overseas, sending sending you know money to support their families Absolutely. back home. Which is of course one of the pillars of the Zimbabwean economy is remittances, and which means that I'd imagine then that some people 
have to go without mm. – they don't have the money they need to pay their rent or to, to go shopping or just to, to survive because Absolutely. it's being held up. Absolutely. Um, it, it really is – Causing chaos, you know, at mm. the banks you can't you can't go. Say you have five thousand dollars in your account, you can't just draw it. You can only withdraw a, a maximum of something like thirty dollars a day. Um, so the the country is literally running out of mm. U.S. dollars to pay for things, and the government is, and that means that it can't pay for the army, it can't pay for the police, it can't pay for the hugely inflated um, civil service. Um, a few years ago. Thousands of extra people, ZANU-PF cadres, were added to the civil service wage bill. So, I mean, directly the state is paying their, their patronage mm. through the civil service bill. Um, but they're having to delay the payments. So they're delaying the army, delaying the police. You know, um, it's getting really messy. So they need cash. They and they think, options. oh, who can I get cash from? So they go to the these big international institutions. Just, just before we get on the big yeah. international institutions, I think, you know, like not following the story so closely, I think a lot of people might say, or I might say, why didn't they go and ask China? Good question. They did. China said no. China is realizing that its whole hands-off policy in Africa, its non-interference policy, which has sort of been the, the, the central tenet of its foreign policy in Africa for the last decade, doesn't really work that well. You know, you get yourself into sticky situations. Um, and Zimbabwe is a great example of that. So Mugabe, you know, the Chinese are very worried about all, all of the government's talk of indigenization and beneficiation and this idea that China can go open a mine there. Um, and then in a month's time, some minister is going to say, no, there's a new indigenization law and we're going to take mm. half your mine. Because they have been changing them. They've been flipping and, and flopping all over the place on that issue. So they actually have lost patience with Mugabe because they realize that Mugabe isn't actually in control anymore. He, he can't really say, you know, his word is not law. Um, and that's a problem for them. They want stability. So they're actually not willing to prop up Mugabe's regime anymore. So they've cut the money flow, um, which again leaves very few options. You know, normal banks won't lend to Zimbabwe. Um, they're, they're not in a position to issue any new bonds, which is where countries normally get money from. So they need some special assistance. So they go to these Bretton Woods institutions. Um, first of all, though, they have to pay off their $1.8 billion in arrears from previous loans. That's to get the $400 million That's from just the to, World Bank. You know, so first they've got to pay off $1.8 billion before they can get the four hundred. So they're in negotiations with the African Development Bank and the African Export-Import Bank um, for another loan to pay off those um, arrears. And then they'll go to the World Bank and try and get another loan. So, I mean, they're just so far down a financial black hole that there really is very little um, daylight at the end of the tunnel. On to the next extraordinary part of this story. You've got the World Bank. And the World Bank sitting in Washington. It's got its teams out there in Zimbabwe looking at things. And the teams come, comes back with a report. Um, now, this report was leaked to the Daily Maverick. So it hasn't been released publicly by the World Bank, although they have confirmed that it is genuine. They, they did say it was a draft document and not approved by the board. But it was written by the actual Zimbabwe World Bank team. And this document reads like someone is talking about a completely different country than the Zimbabwe that we know. It praises Mugabe as um, a good governor who 
has things under control. And without Mugabe, you know, the, 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 the situation would be far less stable than it is. It praises the Zimbabwean government's economic reforms. And it makes no mention of all the crazy stuff that's been going on in Zimbabwe over the last couple of months. Mm. So it makes no mention of the, the fact that the government wants to introduce a new currency. They're calling it bond notes. It's sort of a de facto new currency that pretty much every economist across the board says is a terrible, terrible idea. The World Bank doesn't mention it. Um, they don't mention that Zimbabwe has suddenly stopped allowing imports of 42 products from South Africa because um, they're trying to protect their own economy. Those kind of protectionist measures are sort of explicitly what the World Bank tries to um, get rid of, and yet it, it doesn't mention it in this report. Um, when it comes to human rights, and we all know that um, the Zimbabwean government is not exactly a, a lover of human rights, when it comes to human rights, the World Bank says Zimbabwe will be eligible for money if the level of human rights violation stays the same. Really? So it's a sort of explicit seal of approval on the intimidation that's going on, on the arrests of opposition leaders, on the police brutality that's been meted out at demonstrations in the last couple of months. It really is a, a, a bizarre document. And when I was sort of digging and talking to people to try and figure out what this all meant, the message I got was that, you know, we think of these big international bodies, the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, as all-seeing, all-knowing, um, as, as they're, you know, if they do a report, well, it must be fact. It's not. They're, they are making it up as they go along, just like the rest of us are. So this World Bank team in Zimbabwe would have acted in good faith, but they would have gone to the government departments and said, oh, what are you doing? What are your figures? And the government would have given them some figures and policies, etc. And they then just take those at face value and base their assessments on that without doing the sort of due diligence around that needed for a more complete picture. And I'm sure there's a point in there somewhere, you know, as journalists, we tend to approach from the opposite side of things. So we look at the human rights abuses and the economic disasters and the, all the problems first without necessarily admitting that, oh, maybe over the last couple of years, the Zimbabwean government mm. has made some economic reforms. You know, it's, it's, we're looking at this from different to different sides of the coin but the difference is that as journalists you know we're not about to dish out hundreds of millions of dollars to a dictator anybody. to yeah, pretty much anybody who asks <laughs> hundreds of anything um, i don't think except words i think is about all we have <laughs> we, we, we got lots of words <laughs> but um we recently saw when the, the this flag protest um, happened in, in Zimbabwe, and I think it's Pastor Evan Mawire, mm -hmm. um, you know, he became sort of an international phenomenon, and and the world was, and especially in South Africa, we were watching very closely what was happening with the protests um, across across the country, and even from the point where those um, the I think it's informal traders or street street traders organisations mm -hmm. really started these protests, mm -hmm. but they seem to have sort of disappeared or died out, or at least in the public's eye. What is happening with the protests? Have they, has pressure, has the pressure, is it being maintained on the government for reform or, or with, you know, with the initial crackdown, with the pastor leaving the country, um, 
Just has, has, have things gone back to normal? It's a good question. And it's quite hard to get an accurate sense of what's going on because when you speak to protesters in Zimbabwe, they're always, you know, very enthusiastic about how things are going. And they say, no, the pressure is on. You know, Mugabe is falling next week. Um, and then you talk to someone from ZANU-PF and they say, well, the uh, protests are dead. They, you know, um, they never existed to begin with. So it is hard to get a sense. And it's especially hard because of the lack of media coverage. You know, it's quite astonishing that for South Africa in particular, we should be pretty interested in what happens to Zimbabwe. We are very involved there. We are going to, one way, one way or the other, we will experience the consequences of what happens in Zimbabwe. And yet, we don't send any journalists to go and cover it. We don't have any people there um, really giving us you know, front-page stories about what's going on. And when we get those stories, um, we're not giving them the prominence that I think they deserve. So I think we are, as journalists, South Africa is sort of, we've forgotten about this. And especially with Pastor Evan leaving mm -hmm. the country, he was such a charismatic figurehead that he made for really entertaining news. Um, and he was nice to write about and people were interested in him without him there as a catalyst. The interest, I think, has has waned significantly, and that's unfortunate because there is still a lot going on. Mm. Um, Which I think you're right. I, I, it's an, an incredible yeah. indictment on our interest, but yeah. also our work as journalists. That if this um, this guy who fits very well into a story as a character, mm. if he's taken out of the situation, it's like, well, well then you think the story's the story's gone. Um, and, and, you know, I got into, into trouble with, with some of my contacts in Zimbabwe, um, some of my activist friends who are on the ground. And I said, guys, you know, Pastor Evans left. I haven't heard any news. Well, what's happened? You know, why have you stopped? And they were really cross with me. They said, we have not stopped. Um, and they gave me this extraordinary list. They said, over the last seven days, we have... Um, you know, there were hundreds of people protesting outside a courthouse for one of the people who were locked up during the police brutality. There was an attempt to deliver a petition to police by the vendors union. There was another attempt by, um, a sort of coalition of opposition parties to march on, um, the magistrate's court. There was this, there was that. There were all these things happening, um, that are really brave, really, the, 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 to protest in Zimbabwe, you don't do it like you protest here. You don't just say, I, I'm going to go protest today and toy toy, and then I'm going to go home. You go and protest in Zimbabwe knowing that you might not come home because you might get arrested and locked up, knowing that someone is taking your picture and trying to figure out who you are and might come around later to your families um, with, a th with some kind of threat. It's a really serious thing. So there are these incredibly brave people doing incredibly brave things. Um, and I think it is our duty to, to really give them the, the attention that they deserve. I was actually going to ask you about the – obviously over social media I've seen all these pictures and a lot of jokes being made about this statue of Robert Mugabe, that very tall <laughs> yes. one. But actually, which you know, I was going to ask it more as a joke, but mm. to think now how how – Often I've seen that on my timeline mm -hmm. in the last, you know, the last couple of days and how little I actually know about these protests that have mm. been going on is quite, is quite sad, I mm. think. But before <laughs> we have to move on, I'm sorry. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about, I think what I think is my favorite story of yours in the last couple of weeks. 
<laughs> Simon, what's happening to Africa's donkeys? <laughs> um, I'm worried about the donkeys. I'm so worried about be. the donkeys. If, if, yeah, if you haven't read the story, just Google Simon Ellison, Daily Maverick, and Donkey, and you need to, you need to understand. Our, our producer is looking very perplexed. Um, <laughs> she's not sure where this is going. And she actually hasn't looked interested in the whole conversation <laughs> until I threw out the word donkey. The donkeys. So, um, Right. We all, we all, we all like donkeys, right? We all, we all realize how important donkeys are to humanity. Without the donkey, you know, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. Donkeys are the ultimate beast of burden. They carry things. They pull things. They farm for us. They transport us. They brought Jesus into Jerusalem. You know, he rode on a donkey. Donkeys are amazing. They're fantastic <laughs> animals. Um, Eeyore. Eeyore, Eeyore was a donkey, you know, one of the greatest animated characters of all time. That's right. Um, Shrek had a donkey as a companion. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> you can, know? we can go on. We can, well, I'm not sure we can. I think we may be all out of our famous donkeys. And, and what's happening, Simon? Um, Simon? Tell us. Well, well, well. As, as humans are developing more, we don't need donkeys, right? We buy a tractor, we buy a car, all the things that donkeys used to do, we don't really need as we develop. So it's only the poorest people in our society today that still have donkeys. Now in China, the population of donkeys has gone from 11 million in the late 90s to 6 million. So it's nearly halved. That's a lot less donkeys. The reason this is a thing is because in traditional Chinese medicine, one of the main sort of tonics, the main remedies for just general well-being and feeling better, if you get a cold, you'll get a drink of this stuff, um, is made using the sort of substance that comes when you boil donkey skins. So you boil donkey skins for long enough and it'll produce a strange jelly-like substance which they then mix with herbs and roots and into a drink and then you drink it and you feel better. Great. But now China doesn't have enough donkeys to make enough of this special donkey medicine. So what they're doing is they're going and buying other people's donkeys. Where today do you find lots of donkeys? Well, you don't find it, you don't find them in the first world or the developed world because we've moved on from donkeys. You find it in poorer countries and especially in African countries because we still use a lot of donkeys, especially in West Africa. So now in Niger and Burkina Faso in particular, they have had a huge problem because all these Chinese buyers are coming to their markets and they're buying up all the donkeys at huge prices. So, you know, donkey used to go for $35. Now it's going for $145, which is great for the guy who's selling the donkey. He makes a profit one time finished. But then you get the poor farmer who needs to buy a donkey so that he can do his mm. crops. He goes to the market and he's like, well, now you have to pay $145 for your donkey. He can't afford that. Um, so his crops are not being um, harvested or tilled Donkeyed. or whatever you do with donkeys. I must admit my, my farming knowledge is not really um, as, as good as my other areas but of expertise. The, farm, the farmer is obviously now struggling. But, but they're struggling. And, and I think in your story as well, you mentioned that it's also led to donk abuse against donkeys. Well, um, it, well, we won't get into that, no, it, but there are some yeah, scary stories in South, in South Africa. In South Africa, you've got donkeys, a whole bunch of donkeys, um, being being kidnapped and and sold to Chinese buyers. Uh, anyway, let's not. Uh, we're we're, we're, we're going to move on to wrap from donkeys. Up. We're being told to wrap up, and I know you can talk a lot about. I could donkeys, go on for Simon. a long time. I'm as stubborn as a mule. <laughs> 
Okay, I think on that note, you've been listening to The Daily Maverick Show. My name's Greg Nicholson, Simon, Simon Ellison, uh, Africa correspondent for The Daily Maverick. Thank you so much for coming in. Uh, make sure you uh, check and share the podcast far and wide. Follow us on Twitter, which is at DMShowZA, and we'll catch you next week. Stay informed and up to date. It's The Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.